due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Remember, secrets don't come with price tags. People do. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by William Craig Reed, who is a former U.S. Navy diver turned best-selling author. On this episode, we discuss the tragic sinking of the Kursk submarine and how that tragic event is linked to President Putin's geopolitical plans in the Arctic today. Before we begin, I just want to say a huge thank you to all of our new and existing Patreon subscribers. From September, Patreon subscribers will get early access to content and transcripts of new episodes. And I'll also organise a Zoom drink session for subscribers if that's of interest. I'll reach out to you on Patreon to see if that can work. If you wish to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies and you can subscribe there. If you enjoy today's episode and this podcast in general, please leave a review on your preferred podcast app. There have been some amazing reviews recently, and I just want to say a huge thank you to S. Montana and LP8727 for your recent reviews and kind words. It's very much appreciated, so thank you very much for taking the time to do that. Lastly, if you haven't already, please check out my short spy film, The Dry Cleaner, which is available on iTunes, Amazon, and Shorts TV. Links to everything I've mentioned and William's website are available on your podcast app now. If you just scroll through, you'll find all the links there. So thank you very much to everyone for your support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Take care. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. William, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we start, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Former submariner and Navy diver back during the Cold War, and was actually involved, as I write about in uh, several of my books, uh, a serious collision. We were conducting an espionage operation right off the coast of Russia. Yeah. We ran into a, at that time, Soviet submarine, and they chased us for several days, fired torpedoes and depth charges. And that opened my eyes to a number of things that um, led me toward wanting to write about it. Mm. became an author. And um, throughout my career, mostly in the technology space, I was always involved in the various different technologies used for weapons as well as espionage operations kept in touch in that community and uh, so have written a number of books on the topic. Fantastic. We've written this brilliant book called Spies of the Deep, which we're going to chat a bit about today. And that takes a look at the truth behind the Kursk tragedy and its geopolitical implications. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you came to write that book and, and go about researching such a topic? I mentioned the collision that I was involved in. And so in August of 2000, 20 years ago, almost mm. to the day now, pretty close, um, I remember hearing about this in the news. And it hit me pretty hard because even though we had been enemies years earlier, there's an affinity of submariners mm. and very, very close to 
having the same kind of demise happen to our submarine. And so um, that was a tough one for us. But I also heard many things in the news that I knew could not be true, just based upon how we knew these operations were conducted. I also knew there were two of our submarines very nearby on similar missions to ones that I had done, the Memphis and Toledo. And what I was hearing in relation to that, I also knew could not be true. Mm. And that led me toward uh, the desire to find the truth. It took 20 years to uncover it. Uh, But I finally did get some people to open up, some people who submariners aboard those two subs, as well as Russians and government officials, and also those directly involved in the rescue operation. And that's what led to the book. Fantastic. Did you, just out of interest, um, did you encounter any um, official official pushback in trying to research this topic? Yes, no question about it. With that official sort of pushback, how did you, um, how does an author, because I'm fascinated by this thing, how does an author kind of work around that? Well, technically, you're supposed to take your book and give it to the uh, NSA, NSG, and so on, the Navy, and have them look at it. And the problem is that, there may be 90, 95% of the things that you're writing about that are no longer classified, but there just isn't enough funding for them to go through every little thing. And so they just de- they keep classified things that shouldn't be. Uh, and so they'll just take a big black marker and X it all out. So what I've done to ensure no issues is I've taken it past those who are in the know. Mm. Uh, They're either currently in these positions or have been and are very authoritative and can say this could still be an issue or this, you know, is probably okay. Mm -hmm. That's what I did with my Red November book and have done with Spies of the Deep. And that helps to keep things from causing issues. Plus, I just make sure that nobody talks to me who's not still under any gag orders. Yeah. Yeah, no, fair enough. So um, before we go into the Kursk tragedy um, and its geopolitical effects, I'd like to just talk a little bit about the Arctic and just give listeners some kind of context. Are you able to kind of give us a sort of dummy's guide to the importance of the Arctic from a sort of geopolitical point of view? Absolutely. Uh, I was really curious about this topic. And so years ago, uh, I spent a year petitioning the Navy, uh, actually through some good friends of mine who are part of the Arctic Submarine Lab. And every couple of years, they send a few submarines up, and some are U.S. We also do a lot of things in concert with uh, the the U.K. Navy. And these submarines conduct exercises called ICE-X, and they test the various different gear and so forth because things are vastly different in the Arctic up in the north. You've got ice keels. You've got salt water mingling with fresh water causes a lot of different issues with sonar systems and navigation, weapon systems, and so on uh, that need to be tested. And so a couple of submarines um, shoot at each other <laughs> with practice torpedoes and, and do a, a number of tests under the ice. Yeah. So I went up there and spent a week with that team looking at the new systems and going under the ice on the USS Connecticut opened my eyes to what's really going on in the Arctic. What we now know is that the ice has been melting for some time. And now the Northern sea route has gone from maybe a few dozen ships to thousands of ships traversing that path, if you will, along the route that comes from Europe past Russia and down past Alaska. And 
it's uh, a huge economic boon to country shipping because it shaves 40% off the time and cost. But Russia has dominated and is still dominating that route. Uh, they've built a huge number of bases and fortified the area and brought warships up there and, and submarines. And so we're at a great disadvantage to the Russian Navy. Yeah. And um, one thing that cropped up in your book as well, it's quite interesting, is how the skill sets of at least um, U.S. naval submarines in dealing with those sort of Arctic conditions during the Cold War was much higher than it kind of currently is. Is that right? That's correct. So back in the day, uh, we were involved much more in what we called Holy Stone and these espionage operations. The one that I mentioned I was involved mm. in, we did a number of those. And that's what the Memphis and Toledo were doing up in the Barents Sea. Mm. Unfortunately, our skill set has waned. This is what I heard from a number of submariners that I interviewed, is that mostly after the Cold War, we were doing drug interdiction and other mundane activities mm. or training mostly in trainers on land vastly different than actually doing it for real. And again, these Arctic conditions are different than they are, say, out in the South Pacific or even the uh, South China Sea. And things are, are uh, a lot more dangerous up there. And so you just have to take precautions to get trained. That's what ISIS is supposed to do, but our training has waned yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. So we're a lot more vulnerable. Yeah. And um, is do you think, so with the training waning and stuff, is there is there a kind of reason for that? Is it just because people have felt that, oh, well, the Cold War's over, we don't need to worry about it anymore? Well, it was. And so up until the year 2000, and even in a decade or so ago, mm. uh, there just weren't many of these operations being done, the Holy Stone and other types of operations so the skill sets weren't quite there. However, now with Russia dramatically increasing their, especially their submarine Navy, uh, as well as their Arctic presence, we are desperately behind. We need to be able to do these missions a lot more efficiently, effectively, and more often. Yeah. But we haven't had the training, and so they're desperately trying to play catch up. And, and that leaves us... Uh, at risk, yeah. especially up in the, those Arctic waters. Yeah, definitely. Well, as you, you mentioned earlier, uh, submarines do play a vital role in intelligence gathering. And in, you, in your book, you talk about your experiences on the USS Drum. And that's obviously what inspired you to write this book. Can you talk to us a little bit about those sort of parallels between that incident and the sinking of the Kursk in 2000? Yes, absolutely. And again, my eyes were opened when I started hearing things in the news so when we were on our mission, uh, what submarines do and did back in the Cold War is try to obtain information. Uh, and this could be acoustic or photographic. I did a lot of the photographic operations myself involved in that and sonar, of course. Uh, and we record these things so that our intelligence communities can understand what the other guys can do. Yeah. And this is what was happening with the curse because in January, February of that year, this is 2000, we sent a spy, if you will, yeah. former Naval officer Edmund Pope to Russia to get plans for the new rocket torpedo they had, the top secret squall. Well, he failed. And in fact, eight days after Putin came to power, when he was elected in March, 
Putin ordered Edmund Pope thrown in jail. It's the first time it had happened since the 50s. So we didn't get those plants. So now we're running down to the pier to tell the CEOs of the Memphis and Toledo, you've got to get in real close and take some risks because we don't have any information. And the Kursk is going to test fire as well mm. at an upcoming exercise in July and August. Well, that's what happened is we were very close. We were trying to get information. And now there are strong um, uh, indications, evidence, if you will. And you know, no one came forward and said this per se, but uh, the input that I did receive leads me to believe very strongly mm. that we came too close. The USS Toledo maybe even scraped the bow of the curse. Yeah. And it caused this rocket torpedo to get lodged in the tube right before it was being fired. The rocket engine lit off, blew off the back door of that torpedo tube, ignited the other torpedoes, and blew up the front end of the Kursk. Yeah, yeah, which led to the, the second king. So the Kursk is quite an interesting submarine, and especially with its kind of connection to Putin. Um, so the year before the tragic sinking of the Kursk, the submarine kind of played a vital role which helped propel Vladimir Putin's popularity, which led to his um, victory in the 1999 election. Can you talk to us about what the kind of the Kursk was sort of doing during that time and why it was sort of such a special submarine? So we've heard about the USS Theodore Roosevelt in the news recently, mm-hmm. U.S. aircraft carrier involved in COVID, yeah. had a, a huge outbreak. Well, that aircraft carrier 20 years earlier was also involved in an incident uh, with the Kursk. Mm-hmm. The uh, that submarine was sent on a, a secret mission to get in as close as they could, mm. bypass our destroyer and our submarine and our uh, airplane ASW network. They did. They snuck in very close uh, to the Theodore Roosevelt, got photographs, and got a firing solution, with me, which means they could have pushed a button and obliterated the, the aircraft carrier. Yeah. Uh, they came back to huge fanfare. Putin met with the captain of that submarine, the Kursk. And then later, Putin very astutely went down to uh, Murmansk Submarine Base and met with uh, a number of submariners. Now, Putin's father was a submariner. Mm. A lot of people don't know that. And so he knew what submarines were about. He became an honorary submariner, went through the ceremony, and then used that as his platform and said, look at what the curse did. This is what I want to do. I want to bring Russia back to greatness. I want to invest in our Navy. And that will, of course, create more jobs and bring the prosperity back. And he used that to propel himself from 2% of the vote in August, Mm. according to the polls, to 53% of the vote landslide when he became president in March. So the curse played a huge role in him coming to power. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously then the following year, uh, August 2000, as we mentioned, the Kursk was part of that uh, naval exercise in the Barents Sea. So um, what was, you mentioned earlier, these sort of torpedoes. So can you talk to us about this, these special torpedoes that the Kursk was carrying that was of interest to sort of NATO and the US from an intelligence point of view? What's sort of so special about these torpedoes? Well, that's what opened my eyes to the fact that they were lying to us, because what they told us was that an antiquated torpedo, they called it a fat girl, it's a big, big uh, torpedo, was being test fired by the Kursk. Yeah. Now, the Kursk was test firing this at the Peter the Great uh, warship, 
which by the way, as we speak, is in the Barents Sea right now on a similar exercise, of oh, course, wow. not with the Kursk. Yeah. Uh, but they were they said that this torpedo was the one that had blown up and it was being fired by the Kursk. Well, the Peter the Great was 30 miles away. Now, this fat girl can't go more than 30 miles before running out of fuel, and it would take over a half an hour to get there. And there were... Uh, if you will, Russian admirals and Admiral T, uh, politicians and so forth, on the bridge of the Peter the Great, observing this exercise. Why would they be standing there to watch an antiquated torpedo run out of fuel before it gets there, mm. taking a half an hour to do that? Mm. They wouldn't. So there's no question, huge amount of evidence to show they were test firing this small rocket torpedo, which uses supercavitation, which is like a force field at the front of the torpedo. So it can hit 200 knots. That's four times faster than our fastest Mark 48 torpedo. That's why we were concerned about it. It would only take a matter of minutes to get to the Peter of the Great warship, but it had a flaw. It had a firing mechanism that once you triggered it, you couldn't turn it off. And if it didn't eject from the tube, it would blow up. Basically, the the rocket would, would ignite, and that's what happened. blew up inside that tube, and that's what caused the sinking of the curse, not this antiquated torpedo. Yeah, yeah. So what? So what did you discover? So obviously, this this um, torpedoes exploded in the the firing tube. So what what happens sort of next to the curse? Because it took. I remember watching the news on something like August the sixteenth. There was this sort of period where um, the international community had offered to help, and finally, after many many days, Putin allowed the international community to come in and and send in more advanced sort of rescue submarines. And I remember staying up one that night watching everything kind of unfold on the news. So can you can you talk just a little bit about how what you discovered kind of goes against the official narratives of that tragic event and talk to us a little bit about some of the rescue attempts that were made? Absolutely. Well, the Kursk actually has 10 compartments, mm. uh, one through nine, but there are two compartment fives, which is where the reactors were housed. And so the front compartments, one through four, were essentially obliterated by the explosions now, the initial explosion of the Shkval ignited a bunch of other torpedoes, totally obliterated the front end of this thing. Yeah. But the back end stayed intact because the huge um, bulkheads for the reactor. And so there were 23 survivors from compartment six on. And they gathered together and waited to be rescued. They absolutely were tapping SOS on the hull. Yeah. Uh, the Russians repeatedly had heard this. I interviewed Russians who heard it. I interviewed uh, those aboard the Toledo in, in Memphis who heard the tapping. So we know they were alive a lot longer than we were told. The Russians tried to make us believe they died within hours on the first day. Completely untrue. Uh, we heard the tapping all the way up until Monday morning. So what happened was the Russians had antiquated rescue vehicles, deep submergence rescue vehicles. They did not have what's called saturation diving, which is uh, using helium oxygen to stay down at depth for a long yeah. time. Yeah, They could only, only stay down for a very short period of time at 350 feet. And so 
when I interviewed the first two divers, one British, one Norwegian, who stepped foot on the Kursk, finally, uh, after being allowed to eight days after it went down. Yeah. Actually, nine days. Um, and I interviewed the dive supervisors aboard the rescue ship. Uh, what they discovered was absolutely shocking. Some of the some of the things in relation to the DSRV crews, and not necessarily those crews' fault. They were doing the best they could with what they had, uh, which which was just not adequate. The Russian Navy and government officials just refused help from the West for lots of reasons, pride and concern about confidential information, et cetera. But by the time they accepted help, it was far too late. Uh, but we did dis- dis- they did discover some incredible things that happened during the rescue that we believe may have actually hastened the demise of those 23 survivors. Yeah. What are the kind of challenges of an underwater rescue? If a sub goes down like the Kursk, what can be done? Uh, well, I spent some time actually out at the what we call the Undersea Rescue Command in San mm. Diego. Mm. And toured that facility, spent an entire day looking at all the equipment that we have and going through uh, exactly how we go about about this. And uh, again, when that team was deployed, when the Argentinian submarine went down, uh, they were deployed. So what the, the problem is, is that, you know, imagine a basketball in your backyard pool and you're trying to push it down into the water. Mm. It keeps popping back up because uh, of the air involved. There's not enough pressure on top of the the basketball. Same thing happens in a rescue. When you're trying to mate with the hatch on a submarine, if you're too shallow, it's difficult to keep the mating, the hatch mating, because there's not enough water pressure pushing down on that rescue vehicle. Yeah. So you have to use different solutions. There's there's ways to do it, but the Russian Navy didn't have sophisticated equipment. So that's really what was involved. And you need desaturation divers because they need to help ensure uh, that you can properly mate, you know, do an examination, really understand what's going on, um, and take photographs and so on and, and help clear things out of the way. There's just lots of things that are involved with this that uh, the Russian Navy is not prepared to do. Yeah. Can you talk to us a bit about saturation diving? Because when I was reading your book, I was imagining, remember that? do you remember that film The Abyss by James Cameron? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I was thinking of that. <laughs> How does it sort <laughs> <Yeah>. of work? <laughs> so um, I, I wrote about this in Spies of the Deep mm. uh, because saturation divers were involved in what we called Ivy Bell's missions. Mm, mm. They were the most dangerous and daring and decorated missions of the Cold War. Highly top secret. Yeah. Uh, needed presidential approval before we went on them. And I was the, I've been the only author that actually interviewed the actual divers and the technicians in, involved in these operations. They would not talk to anyone who wasn't a former diver, submariner, and involved in these operations. Uh, but they finally came forward. I'm the only one who's ever gotten interviews with the divers and the technicians involved and wrote about it in Spice of the Deep. But uh, these missions required that these divers spend sometimes 10, 12 hours pressing down, if you will, um, making sure that they equalized 
with the pressure. They might be doing missions down at 700 or even 1,000 feet deep. So it takes a while for your body to adjust to that. And then they would lock out, trudge across the sand. And we were essentially wiretapping Russian communication cables, wrapping some things around them, pulling signals off. And then the te- technicians would do their magic to uh, clean up and, and interpret or decipher these signals. Uh, very dangerous missions. We almost lost several submarine crews and divers on these missions many times. Um, and, and unfortunately, after the Cold War, the Russians never really had a good saturation diving capability, but they had zero after the Cold War. Uh, they do now. Uh, and so that's probably one of our biggest concerns with the Russians today. Yeah, well, talk to us a bit about it, because um, it was with the Kursk recovery, wasn't it, that the Russian government started sort of putting out a sort of tender to try and find some people to train their divers because they were concerned about foreign divers, you know, conducting espionage against their submarine. And obviously with the sunken Kursk, there was confidential information on the ship that they wanted off. And um, and so obviously they, um, they sought sort of outside help to train their divers. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? I was uh, actually fortunate to be able to interview those involved with the original salvage operation, the preparation for it. Mm. But in the end, uh, very strangely, the Russians chose Halliburton to do the salvage operation. Now, they chose a Norwegian company, but it was owned by a U.S. company who just months earlier, their CEO was essentially... (laughs) Uh, now running for Dick Cheney, running yeah. for the vice president of the United States alongside of, of George Bush. Yeah, yeah. And he had stock still in the company, and mm. so he had access to this, this uh, confidential information. So strange how the Russians chose that company, but they did. And so that company, again, owned by a U.S. company, taught the Russians how to do saturation diving for this salvage operation and taught, taught them how to, if you will, uh, reignite their ability to uh, spy on the U.S. Mm. To, to do these Ivy Bells types of missions and potentially either wiretap or what we're even more concerned about today is that uh, they could potentially cut our communication cables. Yeah which have trillions of dollars worth of financial information transferred. A lot of it is between the U.S. and the U.K. now. Uh, it's very concerning to, to world economies. Give us a quick – so how do these cables sort of work? Give us a very quick overview of what these cables do and, and all that. Yeah, they're undersea cables, and so they'll run from – Uh, say, New York, if you will, or near New York, underneath the ocean, across the Atlantic, and then pop up over in, uh, you know, perhaps Dublin or uh, other areas in the UK, but they they interconnect. Mm. The main cables run run between Europe and the US, but they also interconnect down through um, Africa or up across over to Norway. And one cable just got accidentally sliced by a fishing trawler, cut off communications with almost the entire continent of Africa for days. Very damaging because all of our financial transactions, Mm. all the things that are happening with Wall Street uh, and so on, all the information that's being transferred back and forth in a real-time basis, 
Uh, if any of that gets cut off, you know, imagine if Wall Street went down for three days. Mm, mm. You know, what would happen to world economies, not just the U.S. economy? Mm. In a way, we've already got a snapshot of it with COVID, haven't we? Exactly. That times 10 is what we'd be talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so how did Putin use the Kursk sinking to further his agenda to kind of gain control of Russia's energy companies and then also rebuild Russia's navy and start trying to take control of the Arctic resources and sea routes? Yeah, excellent question. So Putin, of course, he doesn't necessarily play chess, but he certainly knows how to mm. uh, from a geopolitical standpoint. He's a master at that. And so he looked many moves ahead. And he saw the opportunity, first of all, to negotiate with Bill Clinton. So they met in New York uh, in September, a month after the curse went down, and basically negotiated a deal, at least from the sources I, I talked to, to bury all of this because it was escalating out of control. People clamoring for potential war. They thought, you know, they uncovered evidence that we ran into the curse, et cetera, et cetera. So Putin... First did that, fired and demoted all of his people, and then rest, wrested control from the oligarchs. He used this as a way to say he had to change things. He had to make all these changes in Russia. And so he used kangaroo courts and uh, took control of these oil and gas companies and then lined his own pocket, but used that to fuel rapid economic growth in Russia. Mm and then invested back into the military and rebuilt the Navy, especially the submarine Navy. At the same time, he also strong-armed the UN to grant Russia economic rights to huge areas full of oil and gas that were now accessible because of new technologies to extract them and the ice melt. Sea of Okhotsk is one up near the North Pole on the Monosov Ridge is another. Uh, the submarine Losharik that we heard about that caught fire last year. Yes, that was a very interesting episode. Yeah. Right. That was involved in gathering the geological information to feed the UN to say this is why this area belongs to Russia. Uh, now, the shark is also involved in espionage operations using the saturation divers that Halliburton trained. Uh, so, <laughs> the second secondary mission. But uh, that's Putin's agenda is to lock up these oil and gas resources, mm -hmm. trillions of dollars worth. Yeah. And that's what's fueling uh, their economic rise. Yeah. And you also mentioned the um, earlier the Northern Sea Route that sort of kind of forming because of global warming, because of all the Arctic ice melting. There's this sort of new, more efficient sea route um, that's sort of developing. And Russia want to get, get control of that. Um, what does that, if they did get control of that, what does that mean? Well, we have to understand that it's all about routes and all about uh, energy, mm. as I mentioned. And so Russia today feeds Europe a third of its natural gas. So the UK, Germany, France all, all use Russian natural gas for those pipes that feed Europe go through Ukraine. So that's what happened with Ukraine. Uh, we, you know, we were threatening, the, the world was threatening to turn it into a NATO country. Putin could not have that. 
So when the Northern Sea Route opened up, again, because of ice melt, it shaved 40% off the time and expense of taking a lot of it as oil and gas, but other goods from point A to point B mm. through Straits of Malacca, Panama Canal, whatever. And so now we're seeing literally thousands and thousands of ships traverse that route every year. Well, Putin decided he could make money from that and also control it. So he's fortified a number of bases and brought a, quite a number of warships and submarines up there and icebreakers. And he charges foreign countries quite a bit yeah. uh, for the right to go through that northern sea route. And we have nothing up there. You know, we've, only, we've got almost no warships, the U.S. or the um, EU. There's almost no um, capability. The U.S. sent a few warships to warn Putin that he couldn't control that route. It was called a Fawn um, Freedom of Navigation Operation. Mm. And we were basically sending uh, you know, a knife to a gunfight uh, in comparison to what they have. A lot of concerns within naval circles. Uh, admirals and so forth that I spoke with that said this is potentially going to cause a war up yeah. in the Arctic if we keep trying to do this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, you've kind of, I mean, as you were saying, it's kind of like um, you've mentioned it in your book as you describe it as like the US have one bullet in a six shooter compared to Russia who have an AK-47. So what are, what are the US and NATO kind of doing to counter this possible, I suppose, nightmare scenario? Because it has a lot of economic implications for the US, doesn't it? It certainly does. And I think that's where we get some conflict. So if we if we recall the Ukraine situation, you know, out of one side, we had uh, Germany slamming Putin, mm. while in the same very week, they were inking another deal for more natural gas. Uh, so it's it's a difficult situation because the U.S. Uh, has been trying to get Norway or even England to maybe uh, help out and bring some warships and be a part of these um, fun ops. And of course, uh, European countries are refusing uh, because it could potentially cause issues with uh, their natural gas requirements or other economic trade with Russia. And you know, we, we have to remember the importance of sea routes. I think that's where maybe a lot of people have a misunderstanding. They think, well, we're spending all this money on ships and submarines. Why are we doing that? There's no war. Uh, well, we want to avoid that, number one. But 90% of what you and I buy, mm. whether we go to Costco or wherever it is, uh, most of that comes via sea routes across the ocean. So when these sea routes get compromised, uh, as we've seen in the Strait of Hormuz or now the Northern Sea Route or South China Sea, uh, it's an economic hardship. You know, we thought it was hard to get toilet paper at Costco during the, the COVID panic. Mm. Imagine that times 10. Yeah. If we have serious interruptions of sea routes or the threatening of such, that's yeah. what we're trying to avoid. Yeah. Well, here's a question. I mean, obviously, I'm based in the UK. Why does Europe have a lot more to fear from Russia than any other country, do you think? You know, I think uh, the EU is probably even European countries are, are probably even more at risk mm. 
than the U.S. And it's because there is such a dependency upon all these different sea routes and there's such a close proximity to Russia. And uh, as I mentioned, a lot of the trade going back and forth, but these there's much narrower sea routes there, you know, getting goods back and forth to the U.S. with all the harbors uh, that are open is somewhat easier than it is to a lot of European countries. There's less shoreline mm. and narrower sea routes. You know, we're seeing the Sea of Gibraltar threatened right now and on and on. And so uh, these are concerns. I mean, Norway is sitting right next door to Russia. That's always been a powder keg. Mm. Uh, so Europe, I think, is is uh, actually more at risk NATO countries than than the U.S. Yeah, and you know we're we're hearing reports of um, if Putin wins his next election, he could be in power for a very long time. Is that a good thing? Uh, yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, so he will win the next election. Mm. Uh, there's no question about it. You know, the July one vote was uh, formality. And it was a landslide victory that allows him to stay in office, but he can now further his agendas and he will win with no question mm. about it. He is in such control over there right now. Um, again, he's locked up all the energy capabilities um, and his agenda again in the long term is to move the world away from what we've been calling the petrodollar. Yeah. Uh, which came into being when Nixon took the world off the gold standard in the early 70s. And all trades for energy negotiated with the Saudis were done with U.S. dollars. Well, that's declining. <laughs> uh, Russia and China don't want that any longer. They've been doing a lot of trades using yuan or rubles. And Putin's agenda is to move the world to petro-ruble. That would undermine the U.S. dollar. Uh, could also certainly undermine uh, the euro and cause a lot of economic harm to the world in general and certainly free countries. But that's his agenda because he doesn't want to have these sanctions and have the U.S. or EU control uh, the economic safety mm. of Russia. That's really what he's trying to avoid are those issues. Yeah. And in simple terms, how bad would it be for the Western, so EU and US economies if, if that did happen? Well, we're seeing some of that indication with COVID. Mm. Again, imagine that an order of magnitude worse. Mm. Uh, we would see huge numbers of defaults. Uh, a lot of these loans that are out right now would become worthless. And we would see printing of uh, dollars or euros, uh, literally uh, dollars would be growing on trees yeah. coming from them, Yeah, but backed by nothing. And so that's a house of cards that would fall and there would be a serious economic decline. Uh, but Russia would then be in the driver's seat. Yeah. Even more so China, of course. And uh, we would be at their behest instead of the other way around. Yeah. And do you, are, are, are the, is the current US administration and our NATO countries, do they understand this, do you think? And are they taking it seriously? And are they doing anything to kind of counter this potential sort of nightmare scenario? Uh, I'm pretty certain they do understand it. Mm. And uh, which is why we have seen a lot of the conflicts that we've had. You know, we, we think that the Iraq situation was weapons of mass destruction, had nothing to do with that. 
uh, it was because Saddam Hussein went off the U.S. dollar and started doing trades with euros. Mm. And we threatened him and he ignored us. And so we rolled tanks across the desert. Uh, same thing happened, um, you know, Libya. It happened in Syria. You know, it's pretty much any time any oil country, if you will, uh, decides they're not going to accept U.S. dollars, then uh, militarization happens or something happens. Again, it's it's a huge threat to the U.S. economy, certainly, and so that's not tolerated. Uh, and you, know, you can draw a straight line or at least a dotted line to a lot of these world conflicts that are di- directly or indirectly related to the petrodollar. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, with regards to Russia, obviously, we've seen um, Russia been playing a very active role in, you know, sort of information manipulation and, um, you know, in the 2016 elections heavily contested. Um, and there's a lot of evidence to say that Russia interfered with that. And now there's even a, a report in Britain saying that the Russian government probably interfered in the 2019 elections here. How does... How does all this sort of link to the Arctic? Because um, it, it does seem to be there's a, a desire to to help Trump. I could be wrong, but it does appear that way. Well, no question. And I think from Putin's perspective, again, he's thinking six, eight chess moves ahead. Mm, mm. So he will look at various different candidates or various different agendas uh, from politicians or those in power in certain countries that could interfere with his long-term plans Mm -hmm. in any way. I think it's less about he likes or dislikes this person or another, but rather he looks at as, you know, if this person comes to power, then perhaps this, then perhaps this, and so on, Mm -hmm. what dominoes will topple? So it's a calculated risk, but who would be best to be in position to not cause a problem with what he would like to do or what he has planned. Uh, it's just you know, probably choosing the lesser of uh, X number of evils, because in his mind, probably everybody's evil. Uh, <laughs> but uh, who's going to be less of a concern for him in the future? Yeah, yeah. And do you think, I mean, it's a bit of a uh, direct question, do you think Putin would like Trump to win in the 2020 election? I think he perhaps sees Trump as less of a threat mm. in some areas than perhaps and it, it, more about the administration, because we're seeing that uh, Trump's primary focus has been in other areas and not the Arctic. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you know, there's been nothing done up there uh, whatsoever. And uh, also sees uh, Trump less concerned about reducing oil consumption, uh, which is a benefit to Russia. And, you know, again, whether, you know, we like or dislike Trump, I think is really less important than what does Putin think. (laughs) And he simply sees that uh, we can keep a lot more requirements for oil consumption worldwide and uh, gas, uh, that's good for Russia. Yeah. And if there's less interference in the Arctic, that's good for Russia. Mm. Uh, so the other party uh, may be more inclined to cause more problems than Trump. Yeah. If you were in a position 
where you could, uh, I don't know, dictate policy. I mean, what what would you think would be the answer to kind of countering Putin's sort of plans in the Arctic? Well, first of all, we have to stop ignoring the Arctic. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you know, sending a couple of warships up there is a warning is useless and risky. Uh, so we need to begin to bolster our presence up there. Uh, we need to do what Russia's doing. They're building new warships that are essentially a cross between an icebreaker and a destroyer. Mm. Uh, we need to be increasing our submarine presence up there and our capabilities. That's, that's another area. Mm. But we've also been uninvolved, really. Uh, and this is not just the U.S., but the EU, pretty much uninvolved with Arctic policies, you know, not, not very involved, if involved at all, and just allowing Putin to basically strong arm the UN and uh, get his, his, his will done, if you will, um, rather than standing up and saying, hey, wait a minute, there's tons of, tons of oil and gas up here. Uh, there's food that's opening up with all the algae and so on and fish, fishery capabilities there's all kinds of stuff, minerals, uh, you name it, uh, is all opening up. And we're just, other than Putin, the world is pretty much ignoring this. Yeah. And if we do ignore it, apart from the economic implications, what are the kind of military implications? Well, again, we're seeing the militarization of that entire route mm. with Russia. Huge build up there. It's the same kind of implications that we're seeing in the South China Sea, yeah. Chinese building sand islands. And again, I hearken back to sea routes. Sea routes are critical to world economies. And anytime you let one nation begin to control almost exclusively any sea routes like this, and you counter it with nothing, uh, you are risking some economic hardships, if not crises. Yeah. Uh, so we can't ignore that. We have to stand up strong. And that's what's important with whether you're in the EU or the U.S., it's up to us to make sure we're putting people in power, people in offices that have the ability to not only understand geopolitical implications, mm. but to make the right decisions and to stand strong against those who are threatening yeah. uh, world economies. Yeah. And with the high-tech torpedoes that are on the Kursk, obviously that was 20 years ago. So what kind of technology exists now? And um, do Russia are Russia the only people who have it? Well, that's, in my opinion, what this book, Spies of the Deep, is really all about. Mm. Yes, it's, it has some historical context in terms of what happened, but I strongly see this as a stake in the ground, mm. an historical pivot point that brought us to where we are today because out of the ashes, literally, of the Kursk, we've seen huge numbers of new types of technologies and weapons. Uh, the Chinese, Iranian Navy, North Koreans, so on, have all gotten a hold of these squall torpedoes and have reverse engineered them. So Iran now has a Hoot rocket torpedo, which is threatening the Strait of Hormuz, and the strong belief that they now have the ability to put nuclear tips on them. They could take out an entire warship armada, uh, 10 or 12 mile radius. Same thing with uh, China, of course, uh, not only 
weapons, but also submarines that use this supercavitation technology to go ultra, ultra fast underwater. And then North Korea. Uh, North Korea is the third largest Navy, 780 ships, 80 subs. We photograph them taking nuclear material and delivering it to the Sinpo Naval Base, which is where they keep uh, host of their submarines. And just no question, they're nuclear tipping torpedoes on those submarines. And again, same, same threat. You know, they sunk a South Korean warship a decade ago, yeah. killing 46 sailors. So they're, they're liable to do anything. And if they have that kind of weaponry, uh, rocket torpedoes that are nuclear tipped, um, that could be a really serious threat to world, uh, world peace. Well, yeah, some people downplay North Korea's submarine kind of capability. But um, I think if I remember correctly that you were saying their, their submarines um, can almost go silent for two days and you, could do, you, you can do a lot in two days. Well, it could be closer to two weeks now oh, wow. um, because, yes, their submarines have primarily been older diesel submarines, a lot of them they got from Russia. Mm. Um, and... They only have a few days on battery before they have to uh, snorkel, if you will, recharge using diesel engines, and then they're easily found. But when they're on battery, they're very quiet. We yeah. lost a number of them years ago. They went silent for several days. Couldn't find them. But the new air-independent propulsion AIP subs can go a week, 10 days, maybe longer. Yeah. Um, much more efficient. And so they are moving toward those submarines may already have some, but uh, certainly will before mm. long. Mm. That could be a real threat, especially if they have nuclear tip torpedoes. Yeah. Are we, are we sleepwalking towards a kind of third world war? And do you think if we are, um, that a nuclear warhead is likely to be used at some point during that potential conflict? Well, previous world wars lasted years. I think the next one will last minutes. Mm. <laughs> so uh, hopefully it's not a nuclear world war, but I think more likely what we're going to see are threats that we can't counter. Mm. And we're already seeing that. We're seeing it in the Arctic. We're seeing it in the South China Sea. We're seeing it straight of Hormuz, where these nations will find a way to threaten us where we can't counter. Mm. And now is when we're most weakened. I mentioned the Theodore Roosevelt. We have a number of other ships and submarines that are COVID weakened. Yeah, The crews, the crews are getting sick or undermanned. Uh, and and so these nations recognize that, and so they can use that as a way to say, okay, we want to do this, and so we're going to make this move here, mm. um, believing that the U.S. Navy or uh, NATO navies cannot counter because it's too big of a threat. If they counter, then they risk a world war or they risk a huge skirmish, and so they'll try to find another way around it. Mm. Uh, that's typically what we're seeing. And that's what's happened in the Arctic, mm. South China Sea. So we're seeing it everywhere already. Yeah, yeah. And when talk about all this, um, in the way I think about it, we're 
talking about sort of human beings in the equation and obviously historically like with the cuban missile crisis and very other other crises there's been situations where the human factor has almost sort of saved everybody's bacon but now we're moving into a world with ai and drones and things like that so is it making it even more complicated to counter this do you think <laughs> no question yeah um <laughs> I, I actually have a, a novel coming out early next year mm. called Status 6, which is the name of the new Russian torpedo. Mm. Uh, they've since named it Poseidon, but it's 10 times bigger than anything ever built. Wow. And it has a 100 megaton nuclear warhead and a small nuclear reactor in it. Yeah, yeah. Now, they built this because they saw that we, uh, U.S. and NATO, could already counter uh, air-launched missiles. Mm -hmm. uh, this they could fire from a submarine very silently. We wouldn't even know it had been fired. And several days later, it can take out you know, any seaport or strait, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. yeah, it, basically, the entire coastline yeah. <laughs> at megaton. And so I think... This is what we're seeing in terms of where these new threats are coming from and, you know, where we really need to be uh, paying attention because uh, these are the kinds of threats that um, AI, and in this book that I wrote, I, I have a what-if scenario that if the submarine was controlled by AI, and I'm quite familiar with AI, um, it's a black box. Most AI programmers will tell you that they don't really know what's going on inside an AI black box. They, they give it parameters, turn it loose. And there have been AI systems that have talked to each other by creating their own language. We don't know what they're saying to each other. We really don't know what's going on inside and you know, what happens if one of these gets infected with a worm. That's a scenario that I paint. Mm. And one of these submarines has some AI control and goes off on its own and starts firing those torpedoes at various yeah, targets. Yeah. It's, not, it's a scenario that I made up, but it's not out of the question. Well, I mean, it, it happened in, uh, it, well, not, not quite that, but uh, I was thinking of HAL from 2001, you know, when, when humans weren't perfect enough, HAL turned on the humans. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, exactly. AI yeah. could turn on the human race one day, you know, we're full of contradictions, aren't we? <laughs> Right. Yeah, Terminator. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. One one other question, um, if you don't mind me asking. It, every few years, uh, usually around election time in Britain, we have a debate about our own nuclear deterrent, which is known as which is called Trident. Is this a good time for Britain to be giving up its nuclear deterrent, do you think? Tough question because um again, yes, the US has plenty of nuclear deterrent. <laughs> Uh, so why do we need more coming from the UK? Uh, that certainly would be a question that needs to be asked. But I think it comes down to a matter of trust. You know, again, who's in power and what type of uh, plans does that particular person have? Mm. And, you know, how uh, honorable will they be in terms of honoring uh, these things? But yeah. um, certainly one way to look at it would be, you know, maybe doing things more jointly. Uh, as I mentioned, we do have participation with uh, U.S. and U.K. submarines at ISEX. 
why not more participation in that way where we're building submarines together, operating them together. And so rather than separate countries with separate budgets, you know, resources get pooled. Yeah. Uh, I think the problem there is that um, one country has a different viewpoint of what they'd like to accomplish and have versus another. But if uh, they could ever get on the same page, that could possibly reduce costs dramatically. Um, And I think that's really what NATO was trying to do. But uh, obviously that hasn't worked out as, as planned. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Yes. Um, I, I always uh, try to provide a shout out to um, a veterans organization. Yeah. I'm a co-founder of It's called us Four warriors, us, the number four warriors.org. Yeah. That's us based, but uh, we actually do get quite a bit involved with a number of international organizations. Mm. Uh mm. The um, International Submarine Association, by the way, has members everywhere. Spent a lot of time talking to folks in in the UK about it. And I also want to thank um, those in the UK who helped with the Spies of the Deep book. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mentioned in the book, but uh, dive supervisors and the divers and so forth who are involved in these operations uh, were really helpful in providing some tremendously useful and behind the scenes information. Fantastic. Well, where can listeners find out more about you and your work? The website is W Craig Reed, dot com. W Craig Reed.com. Mm-hmm. Or you can also just go to spies of the deep.com yeah. uh, to find out information on the book. Fantastic. Well, well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really great. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.